An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lucumnick. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is best-selling author Marguerite Fox. Margot is one of the most observant people in the world and one of the best storytellers. She first became known to a wide audience by writing wonderfully engaging narratives, some 1,400 of them, as senior writer for the New York Times obituary department. She made obituaries into mini biographies that became viral must-reads. Where else would I have read about the lives of the inventors of plastic flamingos or crash test dummies? Of course, she did write about traditionally important people, but her sweet spot seemed to be discovering fascinating stories hiding in plain sight and then telling them brilliantly. Which brings us to our current book, The Confidence Myth, a true story, tour de force, about how two World War I British officers escaped from a remote, hostile Turkish prisoner of war camp using a homemade Ouija board. Welcome, Margo. John, it's a pleasure. So let me read you something that you wrote on the occasion of your retiring from the New York Times. You wrote that, quote, in the newsrooms across America, the obituary department was along a convenient Siberia. Obits was where they sent you if they wanted to punish you, but they didn't quite have enough on you to fire you. It was where they sent you if you were deemed only a heartbeat away from needing an obit yourself, end quote. Clearly, that wasn't you. Why wasn't it? What's your origin story? How did you become the writer you are today? Thank you. And that comes as an enormous relief to hear. I wrote my way onto obits because it is the proverbial journalism job that no one wants. The dirty little secret, of course, is that it's the best beat in journalism because we are paid to tell personal stories. I came to journalism late. I didn't go to Columbia Journalism School till I was 30. And I came to it, I must confess, because I really didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I was a refugee from the academy, had grown up in an academic family where it was just a given that you went and got a PhD and became a professor somewhere. For various reasons, I realized that wasn't in the cards for me, but then what else could I do? My only marketable skills were I could read and I could write. And I discovered at the age of 30 that journalism is a license to be a dilettante in the best way because it enfranchises standing on the outside and looking in at other people's fascinating jobs and fascinating lives and getting paid to learn all about those things. So that's what I became. You also trained as a cellist, didn't you? That's right. That was my first training. And we had, I say had because it's in abeyance per COVID, a wonderful chamber music group at the New York Times called the Quarty Ensemble. 
And there are a lot of very good classical musicians in the newsroom. And even though I ostensibly retired in 2018, they still let me be in their club. And so we are all longing for the day when the building reopens and restrictions are lifted enough for us to start playing together again. QWERTY, of course, being the first letters of the typewriter on the upper left-hand corner. I can't wait to, to be invited to hear it. So tell me about the confidence bit. It's wonderful. I've read it. And it's as full of detail as a Robert Carroll biography. And yet it's also full of not just storytelling, but psychology, almost like a Robertson Davies novel. Um, and yet you weren't even looking for this story when you were researching something to write for your book. So what made right. this story appeal to you? I found it entirely by accident. I was vaguely thinking of doing a book about pathological imposters, people like the catch me if you can guy or Ferdinand de Mara, whose life was the subject of the Tony Curtis film, The Great Imposter. So I pulled from my library a wonderful anthology published in the 50s called Grand Deception. And it's full of essays from all over about hoaxes and impostures and con men and delicious stuff like that. But what should my eyes fall on but an essay with the most tantalizing title I have ever seen on a work of nonfiction. It was called The Invisible Accomplice. Well, how can you not stop and read something called The Invisible Accomplice? Sure enough, it was a brief essay written in the 1930s by Harry Jones, my lead protagonist in this real life escape story, reprising the escapade in brief. And that in turn led me back to his book-length memoir of 1919, The Road to Endor. For the listeners of this podcast who have not read the book, why don't you give us just a couple of the highlights? I'm not worried about having a spoiler alert because the story is fascinating enough that even if you know how it ends, um, you're going to read it. But there were two gentlemen, one Australian, one English, captured and imprisoned in this remote Ottoman prison camp. And from there, let me let you tell the story. Correct. And the elevator pitch, which I think is a revolting term, but it has utility here. If I were to give the elevator pitch to an editor or producer, it would literally go like this. In the depths of World War I, two handsome young British officers escape from a remote Turkish prison camp by means of a Ouija board. If I made that pitch, a producer would think I was mental. And yet, that is literally what happened. And so one of the things I wanted to find out with the benefit of 100 years of hindsight is how this crack-brained scheme, Escape via Ouija board, actually could have worked. And so for me, because I didn't just want to reprise Harry Jones's memoir or the posthumous memoir published in the 70s by his Confederate Cedric Hill. I didn't want to just reprise that, of course. What would be the point? So what I wanted to contribute, and I hope I did in the finished book, was all of the social and historical context that made this kind of spiritual charlatanism authentically persuasive in its day, and also the hundred years of psychological insight that we now have as to why these persuasive schemes, which include everything from confidence games, advertising to 
present day political demagoguery, why these things work and why they cause people to suspend critical reasoning and buy into ideas and schemes and beliefs that are absolutely preposterous. So the core audience for this podcast is the financial community. And it seemed to me that there was a lot that business people and investors could learn from the confidence men. You already mentioned sort of the psychology of the con, and you just have to think about Bernie Madoff or someone there. There's a bit of resiliency, there's resources, there's what in investment theory is called real options. I know the financial community, but you know this story. Tell us what you think investors and business people could learn from the confidence men. Enterprise. And these men, partly because it was 1916, so they didn't, by definition, have the technology we have today, and partly because they were in a prison camp, wartime conditions, great privation for both sides of the conflict. They're 4,000 feet above sea level, surrounded by mountains and desert, no way out, no tools, very little food, no equipment. So not only did they have to engineer this whole long con, which was a kind of piece of participatory theater that unfolded in carefully calibrated stages over the course of a whole year, they had to make any props they needed, any costumes they needed, everything had to be engineered from found objects, i.e. from nothing, because they had nothing. And yet they did it. That to me is what is so remarkable and so inspiring about the story. Let me go back and forth with you on a couple of those things. They had to make their own props. Fraudsters in the financial community make their own audited financial statements, their own references, their own origin tales. So that one to me is a one-for-one equivalency. I mentioned having an out. Can you explain what that was there? Well, there were a number of them. And one of the things that allowed the con to work is the co-conspirator, Cedric Hill, who was an Australian aviator. He was flying for Britain because aviation in military usage was so early, Australia didn't have a fully functioning air corps. So he sailed to Britain enlisted in the Royal Flying Corps, precursor of the RAF. Besides being an aviator, he was a brilliantly accomplished semi-pro magician. And so he knew well about outs from stage conjuring because there are always going to be times when a magician's trick doesn't work. So he has to have a loophole, something dramatic that gets him out of what would normally read as a failed trick. And so too, with much higher stakes, does a confidence man. Remember that the stakes in an ordinary con game are illicit gain. Here, the stakes are freedom and the cost of being found out would have been a bullet in the back for each of them, no question. So they couldn't afford to slip. And if it looked as though a slip was inevitable, then they had to have a way out. Tragically, on the eve of success, they were just 
about Chukan, their iron-fisted Turkish captors into leading them far away from camp in search of a mysterious buried treasure with clues planted by ghosts and the directions to find this treasure had been channeled from the spirits through these fake seances that Jones and Hill stayed for their increasingly enraptured captors. They were on the eve of literally getting their own captors to lead them on the road to freedom when something terrible happened. They were betrayed, that's all I'll say at this juncture, their entire plan that they'd worked on for a year in secret was in smithereens. So they have to go to a very dark, even more dangerous plan B, which involved getting themselves committed to what was then called a lunatic asylum. And this is where Stalag 17 becomes one floor over the cuckoo's nest. Because if they can con highly trained nerve specialists, alienists, as they were then called, if they can persuasively convince them that they had genuinely lost their minds, there was a slender, slender chance that they would be repatriated to Britain in an exchange of sick prisoners. So that was their very, very tenuous out. But as Jones wrote, at that point, it was their only hope. Even there, though, they needed the help of one of the Turkish captors who was still going after the gold. And I think that's one of the other issues that we learn is that you use people's greed against themselves. Correct. You mentioned that Australia didn't have an aviation force. The entire world, you know, we think of technology as, oh, we're in, you know, the year 2021, there's all this technology, there's blockchain and distributed finance and the internet, which is 20 years old, is old hat now. Well, there, there was radio and telegraph and the plans were of a time. Can you talk about that a bit, that that's one of the things that they were able to do was use the technology of the era or the ethos of the technology to make their plans? That's exactly right. And it's one of the answers to my initial question going in. How could such a crazy sounding scheme, sounding crazy to us from our prospect, how could it have worked? And indeed, the reason was they exploited the newness of all of these communications technologies. If one is a non-scientist and you're living in 1916, imagine how miraculous why the wireless sounds. You can turn on a, a box in your living room and disembodied voices have sailed through the air. You can put a wax cylinder on your gramophone and a man or woman who's been dead for a decade can speak or sing to you out of that beautiful morning glory speaker. These communications technologies through time and space were nothing short of miraculous to the general public. And so as strange as it sounds to us today, it was an authentic empirical question discussed seriously by the most eminent men of science of the day as to if these communication technologies were indeed possible, what was to say that communication across the divide between the world of the living and the world of the dead 
was not possible to. It was a miraculous era, certainly. Let me switch gears a little bit and ask you some short answer questions. I know you're adverse to discussing your next book, so I will not ask that. You may. You certainly may. (laughs) Feel free to tell us. I love the scoop. But I was going to ask, just what are you doing that excites you today? What's exciting to you? Let me answer the taboo question first. In general terms, I can tell you that my next book, also narrative nonfiction, is about crime in 19th century New York, real crime. I could tell you more, but I'd have to kill you. And (laughs) what I'm doing this summer apropos of the confidence men is because this story has a perfect inherent three act structure where act one is our heroes joining forces, the development of the con, act two ends as it should with a cataclysm where their con goes south and then act three is this terrible voyage into near madness and the wonderful resolution. Because it's so inherently cinematic, I've had the great pleasure and fun of spending a happy summer in talks with a whole bunch of Hollywood producers who are interested in picking up the option. And on top of that, I have been training in screenwriting. So for reasons of IP and for your readership, I'll say for reasons of further monetizing my own IP, as well as artistic control, I am hoping to be able to adapt this and future books as a screenwriter. That sounds wonderful. Do you listen to music when you research and write? I do. I have the New York Classical Station WQXR coming out of my computer speakers at all time. So I'm taking potluck, which I kind of like. Whatever they play is what I'm listening to. They play way too much Chopin for my taste. But aside from that, it's pretty near perfect. You write nonfiction. So, of course, I'm going to ask you about fiction. Are there any fiction writers out there who you admire right now? I read shamefully little fiction because whatever nonfiction book I'm working on, I spend the first year, sometimes longer, just reading the background literature, which is by definition almost all nonfiction. So what I do read at night before going to bed is procedural fiction, detective stuff mostly, because I realized all of my nonfiction books are procedurals. They're about heuristic processes and nowhere more so than in the slow, fascinating stages of a con game. And so in my fiction reading life too, I'm hooked on procedurals. So I just spent the last year reading all of the Rexed Out Nero Wolfs again. I'm now working on Stig Larsson's Millennium series and I've read the three that he wrote before he died. I'm now into the fourth book, which is the start of the, the second authors taking over. And those are fascinating and very, very useful for the kind of procedural work one has to do in screenwriting. Two great choices. Last quick question. Is there any one fact or belief that you wish everybody out there knew right now? Well, I think dovetailing with the theme of the confidence men, how remarkably easy it is for any of us, even we postmodern educated people, to be taken in. You mentioned the conmen's exploiting the appeal to greed. That's a given. But what they also exploit really is the desire to believe and to be cared for, particularly in times of distress. And it explains to me a lot of the persistent 
fallacious beliefs in the public at large today that COVID vaccinations rewire your DNA, that top Democrats are running a sex trafficking ring out of the back of a pizza parlor. We all know there's no room in the back of a pizza parlor. But the very things that allowed the confidence men scheme to work are the same things because the human psyche doesn't change. They're the same things that allow the persistence of fallacious beliefs in the face of all counter evidence today. I think you wrote that belief is passive, doubt is active. So it's always easier to believe. That's right. Those are the words of a very interesting man writing in the 1930s who was both a psychologist and a magician, which is actually a quite a common combination and a fascinating one. With that, we will let you go. I want to thank you very much, Margot. This is John Lukumnik, and you've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Margalit Fox, author of The Confidence Man. Thanks again, Margot. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.